I think bringing more awareness that we are all being influenced by the content that we're surrounded by the the information that we consume and that it's not always the truest reflection of what is beautiful. Welcome to Habits You Love, a thought-provoking podcast about self-love, self-healing, and spiritual evolution. I'm Kayla Fazio, and with each episode, it is my mission to expand your mind to what you think is possible for you and provoke thoughts of looking at your own healing you may need and help you discover the power you have within you to build healthy habits and create a life you love. Now, let's get to the episode. Today on Habits You Love, we have Dr. Jonathan Konevsky. He is a board-certified plastic surgeon and pioneer in the field of minimally invasive techniques who developed surgery as ceremony. As a supporter of the breast implant illness patient population and advocate for biohacking and regenerative medicine, Dr. Konevsky began his aesthetic surgery practice in Beverly Hills working with elite body sculpture. He is also the founder of Aura Aesthetica, a center dedicated to mind and body transformation. All right. So welcome, John, to Habits You Love. Okay. So I'm just going to come out and say it. The two words... Everyone is probably thinking plastic surgeon and what the heck cosmetic surgery has to do with this podcast and has to do with this conversation. But from what I can see, you truly are more than that. So I'm not only excited to dive deeper, but to help people understand more about the connection between your higher purpose and body transformation. So let's start with just a little bit more of your background and journey into becoming a plastic surgeon. Sure. So yeah, my um, I'm a board certified plastic surgeon. I trained in Montreal, Canada. I did my medical school, residency, undergraduate degree there. So it's it a long journey overall, um, about 15 years of training. I then moved to California and did an extra year of aesthetic surgery training and aesthetic surgery fellowship. And in that road of training, in that long journey was um, not just becoming a doctor, but also uh, becoming trained and skilled in all the different types of plastic and reconstructive surgery. And then um, in my last year of training is when I really focused on uh, solely just aesthetic surgery, training with some of the, the best surgeons out here in Los Angeles. Um, my journey to becoming a plastic surgeon was um, has also recently become... Um, more aligned with some of the other types of work that I do focus specifically on mind and body wellness. Mm. What made you want to become a plastic surgeon? I was originally intrigued by it when I was in Guatemala as a visiting medical student. I saw a cleft lip and palate surgery that was being done there. And it really, um, it, it blew my mind to be totally honest, just to see this, these little babies being operated on. And that's what first got me interested in plastic surgery. But then when I learned more about the specialty, I learned how much variety there is and how you operate on all parts of the body and um, all ages. And it's really what I think is one of the more creative surgical specialties. It's the combination of art and function. When we think of plastic surgery, our minds automatically go to cosmetic. Immediately, people think it's for some kind of improvement in appearance. But I think I heard you say that it's actually more so other things. Like if someone gets in a car accident, uh, reconstructive surgery, I guess, is what I'm trying Mm -hmm. to say. Is it more reconstructive and then just a small percentage of cosmetic when it comes to plastic surgery? Yeah. um, So it depends. If you're talking about my practice, versus uh, in general. So in general, plastic and reconstructive surgery is a really big, broad term 
or um, description of the, of the specialty. And it's mostly reconstructive. It's like 90% reconstructive mm-hmm. surgery of the face, body, hands, breast, um, and all of that surgery after other cancer, accidents, burns, congenital deformities. So most of it is reconstructive. And I'd say about 10% is aesthetic or cosmetic. It's the aesthetic bit that tends to get more press just because um, it's been really kind of popularized over the years. Yeah. I mean, I I would say the opposite, which is which blows my mind because I would say, oh, it's mainly voluntary, but then you're saying it's it's more so maybe someone that has to have it. So that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. And in, in my practice, I focus, um, it is a mix of reconstructive and aesthetic surgery, but it's specifically focused on surgery of the breast. And uh, even more uh, specifically, I do a type of minimally invasive uh, uh, fat grafting procedure. So I move fat to the breast either after cancer or as mm-hmm. an aesthetic procedure. Yeah, we're going to talk about that later, maybe an, an alternative to breast uh, breast augmentation. But as someone who I have gotten three cosmetic surgeries, I have had a rhinoplasty and two breast augmentations. And for me, it was never about trying to meet a certain standard or maybe to get in ahead in what I was pursuing. It truly was, I did not like those things about my body and about myself. And there was an option to enhance them. And so I did. And I didn't act any different or, you know, make it obvious to what I was doing or what I did. So it truly just was for me. So what do you have to say to people and women out there who may be looking for acceptance and worthiness in their appearance? Mm. I would say the journey to self-love, it really is that it's a journey. It's not a destination. And the process to get there and to be on that journey involves uh, just a daily practice. You know, it's, it's, um, it starts with everything from the information that you consume, the people you interact with, the thoughts that you have about yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of foundation really sets the baseline for, for what it's like to, to be happy and content in your body. And also keeping awareness that choosing to do something to your body doesn't mean that you don't love yourself. It can be an act of self-love. Um, it just really depends on what that intention is and what's motivating you to want to do a procedure or any kind of modification. It kind of just re- reiterates why I did it. It wasn't like, oh, I I need to do this to be accepted or some form of validation. But I think it was more so like, I'm just it's just going to make me feel better about myself. And if I can do it, well, let's do it. So that answer kind of brings me to your center, your aura aesthetica. Is that, did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where you truly take people through a curated process where you actually, you know, you bring in a psychotherapist and you have all these different holistic angles to their healing and full transformation of body and mind. When did you make this connection? Maybe it was early on that both of these were important. And how did this idea of doing it this way come about? The idea about bringing in psychotherapy as well as um, some type of body work into the surgical journey. So it's not just about focusing on the body, but also the mind and the, um, and the recovery and the spirit afterwards. That was really um, very early in, 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 in the process. Um, you know, the, in residency, I read this book by a surgeon, plastic surgeon by the name of Maxwell Maltz. And he wrote this book called Psycho-Cybernetic. And in that book, he talks about, you know, he wrote this book in the 60s, so a long time ago, but he talks about this awareness that patients who have a positive mental attitude before their surgery are that much more likely to be happy 
and have a positive outcome from their procedure. So that was kind of the first thing that clued me in, into it. You know, the way you view yourself and your situation mm-hmm. has a positive, a strong impact on on your overall mental well-being and also um, happiness after a procedure. This idea of actually working with a therapist didn't really come into play until more recently uh, when I started. Um, doing more of the surgeries, and I, and I started discussing the, the 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 journey with the therapist who said, you know, like there's there could be some really big benefit to to incorporating this as part of the pathway. And so it's not just working with a therapist, but it's a special type of therapy called ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So it's using ketamine, which um, has been used more and more in the mental health space, as a way to facilitate um, addressing any kind of anxiety, fear, or trauma before. Um, a procedure, but in general, it's also been used for depression and, and yeah. things like uh, um, PTSD. The interesting thing about ketamine is that it, um, I think it used in this way, it takes what might otherwise take many sessions of therapy, but it kind of can compresses it into a shorter time frame. And so that's the protocol I developed with, with working with a psychotherapist. Um, and they do that before the surgery. So it's a way to address any fear, anxiety, or trauma related to the procedure. Just because so so many people are coming, um, you know, just, just because you're seeking surgery doesn't mean that there's not also all the other stuff of life going on. Mm. So it's a way to kind of um, to check in about that as well. So um, then there's the way I do the surgery itself. And I do um, something a bit different. I call it surgery as ceremony. So it's a way to really honor the transformation of the mind and the body in together so um that it's not just about the physical things happening to the body it's about actually the surgical experience as a ceremony as an, a way to honor this transformation and the way that i do it differently is that i use ketamine as part of the anesthesia where patients are um it's like conscious they're they're more or less conscious during the procedure and i'm able to use whatever happened during therapy as a way to kind of prompt and guide them through the experience and I do it with music, with eye masks. Like it's a really intentional kind of experience. And I've noticed that patients have a much better recovery afterwards. They're much more grounded in their body and they feel much more positive about the whole procedure. Wow. So you're saying yeah. they're not fully under during the procedure? Nope. nope. Wow. Yeah. That's trippy. Yeah. With any procedure? Yeah. Um, well, specifically when I focus on moving fat around the body. So, okay. okay. Um, um, when I do the fat transfer to the breast, it's it's done in that manner. And the you know what I've noticed is that general anesthesia has its sort of own traumatic effects on the body. Mm-hmm. It can really cause the body to be, um, you know, you go to sleep and you wake up later, and all this stuff's happening in your body, and you're you're trying to make sense of it, and it's like it's actual trauma to the body. Mm-hmm. So. Doing surgery in this way, it's still a type of trauma, but it's way less. And you're also a conscious participant in it. So you can be present and awake. You can have music playing that helps keep you calm and all the sensations that I create during the the, the procedure um, keep, keep, you, keep you grounded. That's so interesting. Yeah. So as far as the psychotherapist goes, she, like you said, they only specifically mm-hmm. work with you about the surgery. Correct. Not um, anything it, like with body acceptance or like, why are you doing the surgery? Oh, no, no, no. That's, that's totally part of it. So okay. I want to say just about the surgery, meaning that they're, they're there just for you, um, for the few sessions before the surgery and if possible afterwards too. Yeah. Um, but it's not like, it's not like, um, it's, I would say it's, 
a smaller introduction to the therapy world rather than like what it means to work with a therapist on a mm-hmm. weekly basis for like years. Mm-hmm. So even though they're there to help prepare you for surgery, they will definitely address issues around body acceptance and tensions behind the surgery, any fear, anxiety, trauma. Like I'll give you one example. I had a patient who had a, um, she had a history of uh, sexual trauma. And that was actually really relevant to the surgery because we're operating on parts of the body that were sensitive. She's going to be awake. So it was really helpful to know that and also to help her prepare for the procedure. So she felt like she had agency in her body. She felt like she yeah. was a conscious participant in this experience. So that's, um, that's yeah. so, interesting. so it's not just about the surgery, but it is a shorter sort of more condensed um, way of doing therapy. Yeah. Maybe if I needed any other surgery, I think if that's all that I wanted to, I would be coming out there. I actually used to live in LA. I'm in Florida now, but um, I went to a therapist in Beverly Hills uh, for a little over uh, a year and a half every week. But uh, maybe, maybe later down the road, I'll have to <laughs> come yeah, out there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really blessed to work with a, uh, an amazing team, an amazing therapist who takes yeah, that's so cool. So let's talk about breast implant illness. I know you're a huge advocate for this and explanting, you know, I'm now at the age where I'm seeing a lot more women I know who are going through this and with the explant surgery and whether this is an actual decision because of a serious symptom or maybe just a conscious choice that maybe I don't need these anymore. I got them at a time when I was much younger and maybe got them for certain reasons. And now I'm kind of like, I don't need these things anymore. Like, you know, someone's comfortable in their own skin. So what is the biggest reason you see women coming in to get explants? And then we can talk about like how to identify if you need to pay more attention to these symptoms of breast implant illness and what to do. I, sure. I've i personally never had don't think I've had any issues. I've had mine. Well, I've gotten two. So I've had mind for almost 10 years with both combined, but I don't even know the difference of like what I got and what I didn't get and if it's better, mm. if, it's, if it's not. I mean, I think I got pretty good ones, but um, yeah, but I'm just hearing so many of my friends be like, I think I need to take these breast implants out. There's like a huge list of symptoms and I'm like, anyone could have these at any time of the day. So mm. what do you see the most when women come in and talk to you about that? So I used to do a lot of breast expand surgery and now I'm really more focused on fat grafting to the breast as a safe alternative. But in the breast um, implant world, um, I, I stopped using actual breast implants five years ago and then I was solely focused on explanting. And uh, over time, what's happened is I really want to focus on the solution to the whole issue rather than just being on the removal side of the mm. equation because there's still surgeons putting them in and there's still surgeons taking them out. Mm. And my, my thought is, you know, the more I can focus on a safe alternative solution, which is fat grafting to the breast, the, the better for everybody because implants won't get put in. People won't have health issues from them or won't need to be taken out. The most common issues that patients would come in with um, and... Um, not everybody who has implants is going to have you. Like you said yourself, you don't necessarily feel like you have anything. And that's mm-hmm. that's the experience for the majority of, of women. Mm-hmm. Um, you you know, on average, I'd say that issues with implants can be as high as around 30% of patients. And that doesn't mean symptoms from the implants, but some sort of thing that needs to be addressed, whether it's the implant getting hard or, like, or some sort of revision. The most common things that I would see, though, as it relates to breast implant illness is usually symptoms related to things like fatigue, dry eyes, joint pain, um, anxiety. You know, it's a pretty big umbrella of Mm -hmm. symptoms that any number of things could actually cause, which is why it's really important to make sure that if you think your breast implants are causing any kind of problem, that you get a full medical workup to make sure it's not something else that can also be causing those symptoms that is treatable. For example, having a thyroid condition 
um, can lead to a lot of the same similar symptoms. So um, as important as it is to make sure that breast implants are causing symptoms, it's also important to make sure there's not like an underlying medical problem that could also be causing it. One of my friends was like, well, they don't know until they actually take them out. Is that correct? Um, that's not necessarily true. Okay. When you're doing the surgery, you can see the status, like what the state of the capsule, meaning the fibrous, it's like this, it's this shell that forms around the implant. And you can see what that looks like. And that can indicate um, whether or not the body's having a strong reaction to it. But the way the capsule looks doesn't necessarily always correlate to what symptoms feel like. And furthermore, not everybody who gets their implants removed always has a full resolution of their symptoms. Mm. So there is, you know, there is a big range of what could be going on and it's not always clear. Um, and I always, I would always counsel patients saying, you know, I, 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 I believe that you have these symptoms and I think removing may help, but I can't guarantee that it's going to fix them. Right. So where do you go? If you think you have a breast implant illness, where do you go? What, what kind of doctor do you go to? I think it's good to start with a surgeon who has expertise in that space. Okay. Um, it's always also good to go to your primary care doctor and see if they can direct you because sometimes it might be good to see a rheumatologist. That's a doctor mm. who specializes in um, autoimmune conditions mm. because a lot of the symptoms can you know, overlap. So you can have, um, like I said, like a thyroid condition that could be contributing to some of those symptoms and it could be unrelated to the implant. So it's good to just get a full medical Yeah, workup. absolutely. But, but usually a good um, thorough surgeon will send, um, will, will do like a thorough exam. Um, they may send you for imaging. So either an MRI or an ultrasound of the breasts to see if there has been a rupture, meaning mm. the, the breast implant is damaged and leaking silicone into the body. It's usually a good first place to start. Uh, but it is also important, you know, there is a lot of, uh, I'd say there's a lot of misinformation about this stuff, like different treatments you can do to help uh, address the symptoms. And there's not a ton of evidence for those. But I think um, the most important thing is just to go to a, a doctor with a reputation in, in, in the space and, and follow their guidance. Yeah. So just first thing, just go to a doctor, see what they say. But absolutely. Like I said, the list she showed me was so long. And I was like, that doesn't have to be. It's solely coming from your brain. She was so right. just adamant. Like it's the yeah. breast implants. I'm going to get to take them out, which more power to you if you want to do that. But I just didn't know how you even detected it if you knew exactly. Because, you know, if you go to a doctor, they can usually tell you this is what's causing this. Like A plus B is equaling C. Whereas like that, mm -hmm. like you said, it's such a wide range of it could be so many different things. So I just personally don't want women to make any rash decisions and you know, make assumptions that that is what it is. Mm -hmm. See, I, I was just confused on that. I didn't know where you would even turn. You can take an x-ray or something and see what the capsule is doing inside. If it's leaking. You can do an MRI, an MRI. Ultrasound, and, and that will help detect if there's been a rupture of the implant. And then is that only where the breast implant illness comes from or can it, can it just come from them just being in there? Correct. It can also, patients without a rupture can also have a reaction to the implant. Just based yeah. on the type of implant it is, maybe. Yeah. And so both saline implants, those are the ones that are filled with salt water, and silicone implants both have a silicone shell. So both technically have the capacity to create a, a reaction in the body. So I love that you said you try not to even contribute to that whatsoever. You're like, I'm just going to completely yeah. avoid that and any responsibility on me. So we'll talk about this fat grafting as an alternative to breast implants. Sure. Yeah. So fat grafting has been around for a while. It's a way to use your body's own natural tissues, your own fat as a sculpting medium. So um, if you look at what the breast is, uh, the anatomy of the breast, it's, it's mostly fat 
and some breast gland, which is the, the tissue that helps produce breast milk. And a way to in, enhance the shape or the size of the breast naturally is to use your own fat. So in this procedure, you can take fat from other parts of the body, you purify it, and then you inject it back into the breast in like a, um, like literally like you're sculpting, almost like you're painting with a brush. What if someone doesn't have a ton of fat to work with, or does everyone have a ton of fat to work with? Um, you know, there's definitely, I have a lot of patients that come to me that are on the smaller side and we have ways of looking for the fat that usually means they just need to take smaller amounts of fat out of more areas. Mm. Um, but it's actually quite rare that I turn somebody down because they're too small. I'm usually able to, to, um, find the fat in the different areas that needs to be found. In some cases, if I feel like a patient is really too small, I might ask them to gain weight and that will help create more fat cells. To work with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Depending on how big breasts you want yeah. a hat to have, yeah. that's how much weight you need to gain. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that's actually, um, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. So doing a fat transfer is, um, the, it's not the same as breast implants for a few reasons. It doesn't create the same, always the creams create the same size and shape. Usually the amount of in, uh, increase in the size is not as dramatic as a breast implant. And the shape is different too. It's a more natural aesthetic appearance. It's more about enhancing your own natural breast shape rather than creating like a really big um, change that may look artificial. And there's no problem with that. Some, some, some people want that look and that's totally fine. Uh, but using fat as a natural medium also provides that added benefit of you're taking fat from other parts of the body. So it's actually sculpting and creating more mm-hmm. contours. It's kind of like a, almost like a two for one experience. I was going to ask if that last forever is like, it, what if it moves the, around? Can it get can yeah. it shift around? The, the fat that gets transferred is like little seeds. So we plant it. It's almost like it gets planted in the breast and the fat that survives and grows does stay there. And it'll increase in size if you gain weight and decrease in size if you lose weight. Mm-hmm. Um, after about four weeks after the procedure, whatever fat has survived is, is staying with you. Um, so what that means is the breasts look really big at first, but then they get smaller and smaller over the course of four weeks as the, as the fat, as the swelling goes away and as the fat resorbs. Price-wise, is it same, different, um, It's usually, usually usually comparable to a breast implant. Um and my mission behind that is that I really like, I want patients to have a safe alternative to breast implants. So it's not the same as undergoing a breast implant procedure. Um, the only variation is like, you know, the more areas I need to go get fat from that, that tends to change, um, change the length of the procedure and then price and things like that. Yeah. But, but it's, it's my, my mission is that, you know, every implant I can save from going into the body is, is one less patient that has to deal with breast implant. Yeah. And, and the safe alternative to that is, is uh, fat grafting. So cool. I love it. Has that been around for a long time or? Fat grafting has been around for a while, actually okay. over probably 20 years. But the thing is the survival of the fat has been pretty valuable. And um, it's only recently with, with newer and newer techniques that more fat survives and it becomes a better procedure. I'm interrupting this episode to introduce you to TN Dickinson's, a brand families have trusted for gentle and effective first aid and skincare for over 150 years. Okay, I was blown away by the research I did on their products and how they can naturally heal wounds and tears. I was specifically looking on what to use naturally for postpartum pain, and I came across their witch hazel product. 
witch hazel is 100% natural astringent and anti-inflammatory, gentle enough for daily use for any first aid needs on the face and body. Not only can you use it for postpartum recovery, but you can use it to cleanse, soothe, and relieve oily, irritated, red, damaged, and blemished skin. There are so many products to choose from at their website, which I will be shopping at. Learn more at tndickinsons.com. That's T-N-D-I-C-K-I-N-S-O-N-S.com. Shifting over more from more literal education, I'm really interested to know what your definition of beauty is. Mm, I think beauty is that what is simple and elegant. Um, I think, and that, that, that extends far beyond, I think the traditional definition of beauty of like what is visually or aesthetically beautiful, Mm -hmm. um, you know, poetry can be beautiful. Art can be beautiful. Um, even a mathematical equation can be beautiful. It's, (laughs) It's the simplicity and elegance with which something can be created that creates an emotional response. So, you know, something as simple and as beautiful as like a really beautiful sunset can just be can create so much internal sensations and overwhelm and and good feelings so for me it's 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 about simplicity and elegance mm. yeah i think there's and a lot of beauty in that perception goes along with yeah. that oh you yeah know, and I could, that, you and i a, could be at the same sunset you're like okay and i'm like oh yeah. my god <laughs> yeah i think that's a great point which is that there's no universal definition of beauty that it's really is um, in the eye of the beholder and who's who's doing the observing and that's really important as it relates to aesthetic surgery, just because I, I never will push my aesthetic on a patient. Like what I think is beautiful. I, I, I just don't do it. I, I like to hear what the patients are sharing with me and, and to help channel what it is that they're trying to achieve um, without pushing, you know, a, a, any of my own bias or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, you did bring up the literal definition of beauty and I actually kind of wrote it down as, as notes here. So the definition of beauty is a combination of qualities such as shape, color, or form that pleases the aesthetic senses, like you said, Mm. especially the sight. Mm. So I I love that you went completely opposite of that. And you're saying just anything that stirs up emotion in a good way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, you could even argue things that are bad could be beautiful too. Um, like, and that's not always, I mean, that's like kind of probably a deeper, more philosophical approach, but yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. There's beauty in all of it. So going along with that, why I wrote that down is because, um, it seems as though there's like this one beauty standard, right? Like we're all trying, not all, but we see mostly that all the same things when it comes to beauty and this one image or this one just like a desire of way of looking that you want to look like. And if we don't look like someone else, we look at ourselves and we think, you know, we have to keep changing things about us and that will make us beautiful. So how can we, as a society, you know, start to change the narrative around that word, the definition of beauty and really take the pressure off of ourselves around the beauty standards that we see today? I think it's bringing more conscious awareness into what what we're seeing in the content and information that we consume, whether it's on social media, whether it's in the news, whether it's on TV, movies, just knowing that even if it's not being done consciously by the creators, that they are being influenced to um, and rewarded to create a certain amount of engagement with that content. And that's not always in our best interest or reflective of who we are as people. Um, there's this concept 
of um, a, a friend of mine. Her name is Liv Bori, and she talks about it. She calls it Moloch. Moloch is the god of unfair competition or this like concept around unfair competition. And as it relates to the beauty industry, it's that uh, the way that Moloch relates to this industry is that the more you get rewarded for a certain thing, and like in the beauty industry, it's like, oh, the latest trend is to do this. Well, I've got to do this so I can stay up uh, uh, and, and and look beautiful and be competitive and like either be attractive to this person or this person and fit in. So there's this... Um, sort of incentive to keep doing things and it ends up being kind of this race to the bottom in a competitive way and i think bringing more awareness to that that it is really pervasive in the beauty industry at the end of the day who's who's benefiting and profiting off of that it's usually the people that are selling the thing and i think bringing more awareness that we are all being influenced by the content that we're surrounded by the the information that we consume and that it's not always the truest reflection of what is beautiful and um, so one would be awareness. And the second thing would be to help cultivate practices and healthy messaging around just self-acceptance and, and, and loving yourself. So two questions. What was the word you said? The M word? Moloch? Moloch. M-O-L-O-C-H. Yeah. Okay. It's just, it's more of this like thought experiment that applies to a lot of other parts of um, basically all parts of society. Another p- common example is the news. Like, You've heard of the, you know, this like clickbait of like oh, yeah. sensational headlines, you know, well, news companies are incentivized mm. because people will click on things that are more sensational. And so it just means more people will make more clickbait. Mm. And it's the same concept in the beauty industry that people okay. are incentivized and they'll, you know, they'll feel scarcity around their beauty and that they have to do this thing to to look good or stay young or stay up to speed. So it just creates this like negative um, or scarcity mindset. Mm, yeah. And like you said, a race to the bottom. That's so true. That yeah. You're never yeah. fully satisfied. <laughs> yeah. And, and I say that just going to continue. Yeah. And I say that fully knowing, you know, I'm, I'm in the industry. So yeah. my hope is to um, bring more awareness to it and to try and be a um, just a beacon or a light around that. In, in that capacity. Mm, so when you said it needs to be daily practices of self-acceptance, what what do you mean by that? Um, well, mm. I, I know what you mean, but explain a little bit more about, yeah. so is there certain things you do or just in yeah. general the, what you believe? My One of my favorite practices actually involves the mirror. First thing in the morning, you know, when we get up and look in the mirror, like that's, that's, that's a really powerful beginning subconscious experience that happens because even the relationship we have with the mirror, when you're looking at it at first, it's not to congratulate yourself. It's not to give yourself an affirmation. It's to say, hey, like, what doesn't look right? So I can fix it before I step out into the world. Mm-hmm. And just that mindset can be shifted. So um, this is not my practice, but somebody else shared with me, like high-fiving yourself. Yes, the Mel Robbins. A, yeah, yes. that's right. It's such a simple act. But just doing that already creates, first of all, it's, it's hilarious. I know. Yourself. It creates yeah. this positive mood. But it changes the narrative around what's happening first thing in the morning. It's more positive, uplifting, right? But to be yourself and experience. Yeah, I recently heard her speak and she did bring that up about the high five habit in the mirror. And yeah. she did yeah. say that 50%, I, I'm, I'm almost positive that's correct. 50% of people don't even want to look in the mirror. They don't even like to look in the mirror. And yeah. it is kind of a weird concept if you think about it, if you just like stare yeah. at yourself in the mirror. Yeah. But like you said, so powerful just to yeah. sit there, like look into yourself and um, totally. really just start accepting yourself. And it's it's this never ending 
I don't know if it'll fully go away. I'm like, okay, I, I want to change this. I see this. I see an imperfection here, there. Right. I don't know if that will fully go away, but um, yeah, I think just accepting, looking in the mirror, even if you have to say a couple of affirmations to yourself as well, but yeah. definitely yeah. that that is that is a huge a huge one. It's usually the first thing you do when you wake up. Like she says, that you are usually the first person you see when you wake right. up. So you have to yeah. love that person first. Before right. you step out into the world. Right. right. Love Mel Robbins. She's so funny. I actually did the high five habit. I had a little, like I had a little post-it note on my mirror and I did it every morning for like, I think like a month. And I was like, honestly, I will say it did, it did help a little bit. Amazing. There is some that. scientific truth to that. I don't know if you have heard her speak about it about all the science behind it. Um, I heard it on a podcast. I read it. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was. That yeah. Was Just powerful. like with like the basketball teams and like yeah, how yeah. the basketball teams that high fived more, won more championships and stuff. Yeah. I was like, okay. It's pretty crazy yeah. 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 Very tiny little thing that we can start doing. Yeah. What is um, your number one goal of why you do what you do with your Aura Aesthetica Center? And even for spending your limited extra free time on podcasts to share your knowledge. Um, my hope is to raise awareness and create an opportunity for patients to realize the divinity within. And I know that's a big statement, but really um, anything that you can do or that I can be a part of through Aura Aesthetica that helps you feel more at home in your body and therefore more aligned and confident. So when you go out into the world, whatever it is that your purpose is, you feel more empowered to do it. That's my mission. It's like being a physical and mental cheerleader. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do believe everybody has a mission one way or another, what they're doing with their limited time here on earth and uh, being a part of that journey to help, help you feel more confident to do that. Um, that's, that's what my, my goal is. And specifically with surgery ceremony, uh, the goal is to, is to really bring more awareness into what the surgery experience can be. It's a really powerful opportunity to create a transformational shift in your life. Like a once in a lifetime opportunity when mm. you have surgery for most people. So why not honor that and, and make it as intentional as possible? So you really get the most out of the transformation. Absolutely. Is there anything you guys do at the center that's not surgical? Yeah, um, there's recovery um, as part of the recovery process is hyperbaric oxygen and mm. red light therapy. Um, so that's not necessarily just for surgery patients, but also outside of it. We work with some great uh, IV therapists too, who will uh, provide uh, nutritional, like like um, basically uh, different type of regenerative medicine treatments. Um, and then also with the, the therapists that I work with, also have their own practices, so mm. they're they're available and open to to working with patients. Okay, so not just surgery. You come in and, yeah. and do other things. Go see Doctor yeah. Trod for a multitude that's of things. Right. That's right. And then, that's right. And then the fat grafting later. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I will say yeah. you are different than any, like for instance, my plastic surgeon who I used, well, I, I used him twice. Um, and then I used one in California, but he was just like, at one point he said like, Oh yeah, my, my center could be like a drive-through at this point. Cause he was just so used, used to doing it and how easy it was for him. And then, yeah. then hearing you talk about it, it's like so different. You clearly care way more about your patients. And just like you said, it's just a, a whole transformation. And I think when you do make 
drastic changes to your body, yeah, there will be different thoughts, different beliefs. You're going to look in the mirror and see something completely different. So it's almost taking on a, a new identity. I know for me, looking back at old pictures before I did anything, I'm like, I don't even know who that person is. You know, physical seeing something aesthetically done and better can definitely change your whole perspective of yourself. You've okay. got to make sure that your mind is ready to handle that basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and um, if you think of all the people who have surgery and their minds aren't prepared to accept the new them, it can create a lot of um, almost kind of chaos. It's like, well, like, who's this new me? First of all, I'm not fully healed yet. I'm like, feel pain. I'm uncomfortable. And so it's like preparing the mind to say like, no, you got this. You're going to get through the healing process and you're going to love the new version of you. Yeah. So where can people yeah. find and connect with you? Uh, so best place is on Instagram. My Instagram is uh, drjohn.k. That's D-R-J-O-N.K. I also have um, an Instagram for the Aura Aesthetical Practice. And that's A-U-R-A-A-E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C-A, Aura Aesthetica. Also my website, auraesthetica.com. And I'd be happy to share this uh, with you uh, so you can share them with their listeners. Yeah. Awesome. I will definitely put all those in the show notes. Well, I want to take a moment and say thank you for sharing, like I said, your limited busy time and just coming on and talking about beauty, beauty standards, a way to heal your mind and body, the body transformations and kind of finding that higher purpose. And I'm going to come visit you next time I'm out in California. <laughs> all right. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much I'm for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. John. My pleasure. I will Great connect with you later. Bye. Bye. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.